Talk features thought leadership interviews with bank and credit union executives. If you are the CEO or would like to be an executive one day, this is the podcast for you. Learn something new in each episode to improve the performance at your financial institution. And now, here's our host, Charlie Kelly. Hi, and uh, welcome to Bank Talk. I'm Charlie Kelly, your host and uh, partner at Remedy Consulting. And today we're talking treasury management. The reason I find this topic so interesting is, as a quick definition, treasury management is really the investment side of your bank or credit. The things that your CFO does behind the scenes that most folks in the banks are, are not aware of, or credit union is not aware of, if they're in the operational side of the world. What's fascinating to me about it is it drives so much of the bank's revenue, just this balancing act that we're going to talk about here. So we've got uh, Scott Hildebrand on. Scott will be joining us in just a second, but uh, let's get started. Hi, today I'd like to welcome uh, Scott Hildebrand from uh, Piper Sandler. Scott, thanks and wel- welcome to Bank Talk. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Excited to uh, to finally get to do this. Today, Scott, we're going to talk treasury management, which you know is a, a term that I think very few people in a bank know and understand. And first, before we do that, I wanted to just get a brief introduction from you, who you are, Piper Sandler, just a little bit about your background. Sure. No, and again, thanks, Charlie, for, for having me this afternoon. Uh, yeah, as mentioned, I'm Scott Hildebrand, and I do. I work at uh, Piper Sandler, and I run what we call our financial strategies team. Fortunate enough to have a team of 25 of us who work with financial institutions, mostly banks and credit unions all throughout the country, really around asset liability, balance sheet strategy, derivative, ALCO education, Heavy duty, boring stuff, Charlie, but I love it. Uh, but uh, yeah, no. So, and I've been doing it a long time, almost 20 years now. I was a partner at Sandler O'Neill and we sold to Piper Jaffrey to become Piper Sandler in January of 2020. And uh, ignoring the uh, little hiccup of the uh, of, of COVID, outside of that, everything's been going very well and, and, and smooth. So excited to be here and hopefully that's a decent intro. Appreciate the background. The way that we got together, Scott, is I was reading an article from one of the bankers' magazines, and I try to peruse some of this stuff, just either finding topics for the, for the podcast or uh, just to try to stay educated in the in the industry. And I came across an article you had written called "Strategies for Navigating Tectonic Shifts in Liquidity." And between that and what you just said when you just uh, introduced yourself, I figured there's an awful lot of bankers out there that listen to our show that both don't understand the title of your article and don't understand half of the terminology you used. (laughs) (laughs) So so the purpose today is really to dumb this down a little bit and maybe start from scratch. Because as I was thinking about that article, I thought to myself, you know, I've been in the industry for a while and there's just, there's a lot of terminology out there. There's a lot of, of thought processes around, you know, how to manage the books. But what occurred to me the most was, I started thinking about how different a bank or a credit union CFO role is from a CFO role at a company, right? right? In any company, you have sort of receivables and you have expenses. And if you balance the two, you know whether you're making money or not. You know, in a bank or a credit union, it's not quite like that because you have this treasury management functionality, which is, you know, very simply put, trying to make sure you're making more money 
on your loans and investments than you than you spend in the bank, either on you know paying for deposits or uh, any other expense for the bank. And I'll stop there because you know way more about this than I do. But that's that's you know poor man's version. What do you think about that? Yeah, no. Well, well. First of all, I'm going to have you write a letter to my English teacher in eighth grade because I never got more than probably a B or a C in, in in writing. So thank you for reading the article, number one. But I think you know more importantly, look, I think your treasury management descriptions is is fair, and I think it is truly it's it's interesting, right? I've spent 20 years working with chief financial officers in financial institution space. If you took me out of what I do and dropped me and had a meeting with a chief financial officer of any other type of company, I wouldn't be able to help them. Because what's interesting and unique about the financial institution space is that a chief financial officer has an interesting dynamic. And that interesting dynamic is on the funding side of the world. Their funding, right, comes in and and through the form of deposits. Charlie's money, Scott's money, everybody else on this podcast, your money, you, you leave money at an institution. The problem with that, Charlie, is that you can take your money out. You have a big expense. You want to do something. You want to go on a vacation, et cetera. You add that up thousands and thousands of times. And a chief financial officer is trying to understand how to manage what we call that liquidity risk, right? Money in, money out. When's it leaving? Is it seasonal? Is it going to be here forever? How much do I have to pay people to keep it here? And then, oh, by the way, what does the asset side of my balance sheet look like, whether it's in loans, securities, leaving it in cash? And I got to manage that spread. And I also have to make sure the changes in interest rates. So there's a lot of challenges that a bank or credit union chief financial officer has that's much different than the rest of us when we took that 101 class in college on business. It wasn't about a bank balance sheet. It really wasn't. That was, This is a little bit more difficult and a more probably art than maybe even science or at least 50-50. Hopefully that's a decent description. No, that is. And, and uh, you know, if I dumb it down one step further, right? I think about the movie, you know, It's a Wonderful Life, where, yes. where George is running around trying to figure out yep. how to make sure that, you know, people can take 10 bucks out of the bank for Christmas or whatever, right? Yep, yep. Uh, uh, right at a, at a conceptual level, that's, that's, you know, probably a little simpler than it is these days, but not too far off. I mean, when you think about just uh, balancing uh, inputs and outputs, I suppose, right? Or, yeah. or investments yeah. versus, versus well, deposits. And your point is valid too. I mean, if you even go back to the great credit crisis, right? Way after the It's a Wonderful Life, but the same concept. If you remember those pictures on on, on, on news channels and on TV, uh, people standing in line at the banks trying to get their money out before the institution failed, right? And so that is an extreme case of of liquidity uh, liquidity risk. And and you know ultimately, what kills banks and credit unions is is liquidity risk. And that's why it's so important to to take. Take a deeper dive and understand the impacts it could have. When you hear the term, because liquidity is a term that probably anybody in a bank has heard at some point. Break it down even a little more basically. Liquidity is just making sure that you have enough dollars to cover withdrawals. Is that a fair way to put that? Yeah, that's a fair way to say. Here's how I describe it in my nerdy world. I say the following. Liquidity is not having cash on hand. It's the ability to raise cash quickly and effectively and efficiently. And so a banker, right, a chief financial officer is constantly managing the difference between getting the money in and getting it out as fast as we can in the form of a loan or a security to earn above what they're paying out for that money. And so you just have to manage that spread and constantly focused on the fact that that money could leave at some point. And what are my backup plans to handle it? I got you. 
So they have multiple sources yes. of moving the money in and out. It's not just it's not literally just what's sitting in the branches or or what's that's sitting right. in the you know in the uh, digital space. But that's okay. right. And and what's interesting too, Charlie, that and probably outside of my nerdy title on the article, but what's interesting that has gone on, and I think it's really important for the for the listeners to hear this a little bit, the liquidity stress that's on financial institutions right now is exactly the opposite of what was going on in It's a Wonderful Life. Mm -hmm. Meaning a couple of, you know, about a year ago, a little before, you know, let's call it March of 20. And when we were dealing with the pandemic, financial institutions were calling me saying, hey, Scott, I'm really worried. I think a lot of small businesses, right? Individuals are all going to pull their money out because they're going to be nervous and going to need extra money in case of anything, you know, with the, with the world shutting down. By about April 15 of 2020, Charlie, the world changed again from the financial institution space. And we went from, hey, Scott, how do I get money in here? To, hey, Scott, how do I get money out of here? Money came pouring into all the financial institutions at a probably more rampant pace than maybe they've ever seen in their entire careers. And that today still lives on a lot of financial institutions' balance sheets. And so it's weird to say this, Charlie, but institutions have too much cash right now. And they don't have avenues and areas to put it because we don't have a booming economy from the sense of lending. Right? Who's who needs to borrow money right now? And everybody's kind of sitting on the excess liquidity they all have in their individual accounts and commercial accounts. It's now challenging for chief financial officers because they have so much, but in their back of their mind, they're always kind of thinking about, well, when the pendulum swings, am I going to be ready? Am I going to be ready when it becomes difficult again to get deposits? Right now, it's become incredibly easy. I think even Jamie Dimon said recently, he's trying to get people to stop putting money into the institution because he doesn't know what to do with it. Yeah. So Scott, just to help me understand the drivers sure. for that, is that you know some combination of stimulus checks and people are, you know at least for a year, weren't doing a lot of spending because they were holed up, therefore savings ranks went up or... There must be other drivers there. Yes. No, I, I think you're hitting you're hitting them all. And, and there's probably a few others, right? You think about all the stimulus checks. You think about the indirect stimulus with the triple P, right? The programs mm -hmm. that the financial institutions, by the way, knocked it out of the ballpark and were fantastic at helping you know small businesses uh, deal with the through the through the crisis. But I'll tell you, you're right. People didn't spend a dime because they couldn't go anywhere. And in fact, one of the things I often talk to community institutions about is looking at personal savings as a percentage of disposable personal income. And we're probably at an all-time high. So the average over probably the last 15, 20 years, Charlie, is probably about 7.5%. And right now, we're probably double that in that 15% range. You're right. A lot of that money is sitting in on bank balance sheets with people who are just now, right? People are lifting restrictions. So you're going to see more travel and more vacations. And if you can get lumber, you're going to redo your home. You know, all that stuff right. is starting to pile up. And so it'll take time because there's so much money in the industry, but it is happening slowly, but surely. But I think between all of that and, and really the Fed in general, injecting about as much liquidity and in as many ways as possible into the financial institution industry to make sure there was no issues through the pandemic. Gotcha. And I, and it would, I would sure think to your point of it swinging back the other way, eventually people start spending again and you, know, you right. will have the ability to do it in ways that uh, you haven't been able to in a year and a half. So I'm, I would imagine that savings rate probably will dribble its way back down. I think that's right. I think we've never seen this much, so it may take a little time, but I guess they call it revenge spending. I think people are going to get out there and do some things. That's right. 
Okay, so so the next question I had for you was: as I think about too many dollars in the right in those accounts, walk us through the types. And I, you mentioned this before, but I want to slow it down just a little bit. So now you're the CFO, and you have an option to do what with that money if you can't lend it out. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the uh, interest rates and why they affect this sure. and, you know, that gap between the two. Sure. And then I want to kind of talk from there about, a little bit about other investments outside of, you know, if I can't make a loan to somebody. No problem. And I think to even take it a step down to clear everybody's mind here, the first thing you have to think about is a financial institution at its core is a spread manager. They take in deposits and pay somebody something for that. And then they take the money and they go out and earn money either in a loan or in a security or the third option is leaving it in cash and earning maybe the Fed funds rate or right now maybe Fed funds effective. So you really have three options, right? Lending, buying a security, or leaving it in cash, to what to do with all this money. Mm-hmm. And we're supposed to make a spread there, right? I'm paying Charlie 30 basis points in his money market account. I'm going to take that $100 and I'm going to go lend it out at 4% and I'm going to make that spread. That's the easy, that, that, that was the old days, as they like to say. <laughs> Nowadays, you have, to, you have the double whammy. You've got Charlie has $200 in his account. The past 10 years, he's had $100 and now he has $200, right? And the other problem is, is that Scott's not borrowing any money right now. So now you've got extra dollars than you normally have and lending is down across the country for the most part. So you now have to make the, the fund distinction and decision. And this is where it's, it is incredibly difficult and challenging to be a chief financial officer right now. You've got to go out and buy a bond, most likely, at or near historic lows and rates, but even more importantly than even lower rates. The other problem is everybody else is flush with cash. And as we all learned at Economic 101, it's all about supply and demand. There is so much supply of cash and so little assets to buy. What happens to the to the, to the the spreads in those assets that you're earning? It gets tighter and tighter and tighter because I'm, faced to, I'm, I'm competing against everybody else in the country on the same types of assets. Whether it's in the loans or the securities, they're incredibly expensive right now. So you've got that added challenge that I that I sometimes don't think people fully understand. They may get the fact that oh, you know, right now we can't lend, so instead of earning earning four percent, we're going to have to earn call it one and a half percent. But really, it's like one and a quarter because spreads are so tight on those securities. If that makes sense, it does. And of course, even the loan rates are so low that right. that right. spread, which is used to be your most viable, right? Or if you That's could, right. if you could, That's lend right. Them, That's um, right. You've, if you've everybody, everybody in pitch there too. If everybody has more cash than ever, then the few loans that are out there, it's great to be a borrower today. If you're a borrower today, you have your pick of bank, credit union, you have your pick of term, you have your pick of rate. Um, They're just thrilled that they're not buying a bond. And so if you're a borrower today, it's a great time. And and if you're a lender, it's a really difficult time. You're fighting a lot of people and you got to be smart about the credit risk and the interest rate risk and all those other things that I could put you to sleep and your listeners to sleep on, but but I'll stop there. (laughs) I want to go just one level deeper and hopefully nobody falls asleep during this. I want to talk about time as it relates to investments, right? So I think about if simpler version of probably some of the things that you're going to talk about, but if if I am a CFO and I'm out there pushing my lending team to go lens, you know, go, go do something, right. Go, go uh, sell some loans. I know that when I go invest in a mortgage, 
15 year term, 30 year term, right? So it's a longer term. They usually pay off and they used to pay off in seven years. I don't know what they pay off in these days. Probably got that thing on my books at whatever interest rate I settled on for seven years, or I can, you know, do other things with it, but let's pretend I'm holding the assets, right? Yep. Yep. Now, if I, if I go get a car loan, I know that's probably a two or three year term. I may have higher interest, but uh, I know I'm not going to have it quite as long. So, you know, that, that concept of investments turning over. Now, I want to take that from loans to investments because investments are a little more complicated. I would think that at any time, the CFO's job is to balance what's coming on the books with what's going off the books. And I I'd like you to just kind of extrapolate on how that plays in, especially when interest rates might be lower today or and, and even returns on these, on these investments might be lower today than they might be tomorrow. So, I, and I think it's important to to think about something. Financial institutions are unique in so many ways, and those of you who are chief financial officers listening, you're probably smiling because we have a bond portfolio at a credit union or a bank for different purposes than almost any other type of entity that would ever buy a bond. We have this bond portfolio, and you described it really well, Charlie. And you probably didn't mean to all the way, but what we have this bond portfolio for is to manage liquidity risk and interest rate risk. That's the first two reasons why we have the portfolio. The third reason is earnings or yield or return. And I think if you're not in treasury management, you're not in the chief financial officer's suite talking to them about the bond portfolio, then you're not going to understand maybe why they buy the assets they do. To answer the question on time, we use those bond portfolios to think about, look, I need to earn something more than what the Fed Fund's effective rate is, which is like eight basis points today, right? I can't live on eight basis points. I need to go out and buy assets to earn something while I can build a bridge till economy switches and, and, and there's more borrowers. What I do with that securities portfolio today is design it in a form and a fashion to make sure that regardless of movements and interest rates, I'm getting anywhere from 15 to 25% of my portfolio back in the next 12 months so that I have the option again to say, okay, hopefully it's going back into the lending world. And if I can't find it, it's going in the securities world. And I manage my bond portfolio. I almost back into my yield based on my desire for interest rate and liquidity risk and how to remove it. So it's, it's, it's an interesting approach, right? It's an inside out approach. It is not hey, look at the market and let me find the best asset that I can buy in the bond world today in the market. The market is a huge, a huge world. I need to look at my own balance sheet and say, well, wait a minute. Some of these deposits may run off next year. I may lose a couple of customers. The world may shift a little bit. Maybe more lending happens. I want 25% of my bond portfolio back in the next 12 months. So then I create the portfolio based on that. And those are my targets much more than return from the market. I want to earn mm. something and I want to earn enough to live and to continue to earn a spread, but you can't just look at it, at it from a return perspective. It's got to be cash flow, liquidity, and interest rate risk. Let me stop you there and ask you a sure. question that just pops to my head as soon as you said that. Is that because, is the reason you want 20, 25% rolling back to you on a regular basis because you can make more on your loan portfolio? In other words, your, your preference is to get it into that loan portfolio and, and be as lent as you know the regulars will allow. Is that is that the reason for that? Yeah, or is there a I different would, reason? I would say it slightly differently, but you're but you're right. You're right at the big picture. The big picture is for more than one reason, forget even return. The reason we are in business is to serve our community. We serve our community two ways, really. We take their money, we give them a lot of safety, and we pay them a little bit for it. 
But more importantly, we also offer out lending to businesses and individuals in our community. That's what we're in business for. We're not in business to buy bonds, right? Yeah. And so we buy bonds as a necessary evil to manage the rest of the balance sheet. And so to your point, 99% of the time, 95% of the time, a loan will yield more, maybe much more than the typical security that we would buy for a financial institution balance sheet. So you're absolutely right. I just wanted to add that one little component outside of return. It still would rather lend as long as we're from a liquidity and, and credit risk and all that fun stuff perspective. Yeah, I got you. And that makes a lot of sense. Right. I mean, there's another thing from a, a simple man's version of this thing, sure. but um, it would seem to me that also you might have a little less risk in the lending, as long as your your lending is spread the way we talked about it, right? If you have some auto loans, some mortgages, some, right? You've got smaller balances rolling over at different times. Unless everything is in one piece of your lending portfolio and a risky one, right? right. The ability to spread it by, by different product types, different dates, different interest rates is, I would think would be to some degree almost less risky. I would say that's 75% right. <laughs> and I love uh, we have never That's met why I have person, you on here. We never I, met I don't want to be 100% and you, right. And you may never want to meet me now because I'm because I'm I'm disagreeing in touch. No, you're not wrong. Um, but I what I would tell you though is if I bought a treasury or I bought an agency backed security by backed by Fannie or Freddie, from a credit risk perspective, it's really difficult to, to feel uncomfortable buying that asset, right? Yeah, absolutely. When I absolutely. but when I lend to Charlie, or I'll say it better, when I lend to Scott, right? There's definitely credit, more credit risk there than Fannie or Freddie. Your point is, yeah, right. So, so I do want to make that distinction. However, your point is, look, I do in the lending world, I do want to diversify, right? I want to diversify product. I want to diversify individuals. There's legal lending limits. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things put in place so that you are spreading that risk out. My only argument to all of that is, I don't want financial institutions, especially today, to go out and reach for types of loans they've never really done and don't have the expertise. I have seen that movie. It was done back in 2005 and six and seven <laughs> when there was pressure to grow and pressure to make more loans. And we're not at that stage and I'm not seeing it, but I could see the pressure on lenders and, and chief financial officers as they watch their margins shrink, thinking about how do I get into a new asset class? And there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it. So stick yeah, to your niche, it. right? And 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 do it really well and, and accept that there's going to be slower and, and faster times and then or hire the right types of of individuals who have that experience. If that I just wanted no, to No, that's a great perspective. That. No, that's a great perspective. I was thinking about that in a different context a while back. I was thinking with all the liquidity there, right? Yep, yep. This is this is a good time to go ask your bank for money, right? Cuz oh my god, yeah. They probably yes. are looking at their they're probably looking at the options that they have to go lend this out and saying I I've, I've been in the safe area for a long time, it's always done well by me. Right? And now yep. maybe I stretch it just a little bit because uh you know, my my options yeah. are are shrinking. It is, you know, what's interesting is, is in a financial institution's DNA is the fact that we take, see, this is the thing. We take credit risk. We're okay taking credit risk. We're okay taking interest rate risk. And we're okay taking liquidity risk. We just have to manage it. 
We have to manage it thoughtfully. That's why we're compensated. That's why we make a spread. What I I always just always caution people to not get into certain products at the height, right? It's kind of like buying a stock at its height, like, right? Everybody's flushed with cash right now. So it feels really safe to lend out and do some things we haven't done previous. We know how that movie ends in the end. And that's all my, that's all I caution. And okay. then we're going we're gonna to jump around just a little bit. Sure. But so I wanted to spend just a minute or two on something you and I were kicking around. Right. And, and that's the difference in the savings rate between this pandemic and, and you know, maybe what happened in 2006, 2007. Give me a, a feel for that. Or, or, or how do you think about that in your side of the world? Yeah, I'll tell you, deposit costs and and what people are able to earn at a financial institution today is obviously at or near all-time lows predominantly, right? We're, we're not mm-hmm. thrilled about it, but it is what it is. And we have the safety and, and we're comfortable leaving it there. I'll, I'll tell you that you know, just two years ago, Charlie, and this is really interesting, just two years ago, one of the top Google searches was highest one-year CD rate highest money market account in the country. And just a couple of years ago, financial institutions started fighting each other tooth and nail to pay up to get more deposits in. And boy, did the pandemic flip that around, right? Like I described earlier. Hmm. Yeah. So it's really interesting to watch this pendulum swing. Now, you go back to 2009 and 10 and 11, like coming out of the credit crisis. And because the credit crisis was let's call it man-made. You know, it, it, it was our own kind of issues. We all tried to grow too fast. We all know the story. It took us a long time to get back out of it and figure out what to do. And so there was a long period of time when lending was down and bankers used to tell me, Scott, I can't turn the deposit faucet off. Meaning I, they're just, it's coming in waves. Fast forward to 2017, 2018, I was, certainly wasn't hearing that anymore. The economy was starting to rumble. And when lending starts to happen, you know what else starts to happen? Deposit pricing goes up. And so it's all a function of how many more people are looking to borrow money actually will drive your deposit rates higher. It's, it's ironic, right? You don't think hmm. about it that way. People love to think about it in nominal interest rates, and I don't. I think it's all about supply and demand. Nobody today is going to pay Charlie much more than what he's getting today in his money market account because it keeps coming in waves no matter what I charge. But yeah, that, they don't need the be, deposits, right? That's right. That's, that's right. Because what am I going to do? Rush and get your deposit for an extra 10 basis points and go buy that, that treasury bond? Like that's not exciting, right? That's not that's right. not gonna that's not going to be anything for what we really want to do business for. That will change. The day when I've got a pipeline full of loans and everybody's looking to my institution to borrow, what am I going to do? I'm going to pay Charlie more. I got to make sure he's happy. His money's staying with me, and I got to go find the next Charlie and the next Charlie because people are spending, and so that he doesn't instead of the hundred dollars. He went to 200. Now he goes down to 50, right? So there's really this pendulum swing. And right now we're just on one side of it. Question or bounce a little bit here. No problem. So you had mentioned uh, while we were talking through this, you said, you know, really you're in the treasury management world. You got three options. It's a loan. It's a, you know, go pick up a security or, you know, see how how well you can do on your cash that's sitting around. I wanted to make sure that our listeners understood when, when we start talking about securities that a bank or a credit union are able to even invest in. Yep. I mean, that isn't that isn't here. You, you know, go throw your money in the stock market. 
you have a very limited set of options there. Can you can you explain those to us? Sure. There is a very limited pool of assets, quite frankly, that financial institutions will, I call it parking their money, right? They're, they're buying bonds to hurry up and earn something, get their money back so eventually they can lend it. So it is a pretty, when I call it plain vanilla, there's some esoteric assets that you can go out and buy. But I'll tell you, the best run financial institutions in this country spend one day a month on their bond portfolio. It is transparent. It is liquid. It is very little credit risk and positioned to help manage the rest of the balance sheet. The typical types of securities financial institutions are buying are the following. They're buying treasury bonds a little bit. They're really buying a lot of agency mortgage-backed securities. So they're just all of our mortgages pooled together, backed by Fannie or Freddie or sometimes Ginnie Mae. So it, it gives them good credit and faith, uh, faith and credit behind it, which is great. They're also buying uh, what we'll call corporate bonds, and they're also buying municipals. I'd say a lot of financial institutions, probably more banks than credit unions, own anywhere from 10 to 20% of their investment portfolio is probably in the municipal world. And that gives a nice tax advantage asset, typically has a little bit longer duration. Typically, it's in the markets that they serve. So they understand who those municipalities are, right? There's a whole theory behind all of that. And those are predominantly the three or four asset classes you will see in most financial institution investment portfolios. You can get riskier and I've seen it and there are some smart things to do on the riskier side. You just have to have the time, expertise and energy to, to dig into it. But I'd say that's 80% of financial institutions bond portfolios. Okay. And then I, I want to re reiterate something you said before we actually started recording the sure. podcast. You had also mentioned that, right, the goal is okay. not to, the goal for the for the CFO is not to beat some benchmark. And I think that's really important because because they don't have a lot of options to beat, to beat the benchmark. What are they going to beat the, you know, yeah. the uh, mortgage-backed yeah. securities benchmark? Right. It, I mean, it's it's uh, right, right. And I always find it interesting when a bank or credit union will say, "Well, look, my investment portfolio yield is in the top quartile of of some measurement." And I'll say, "Well, that's great, but we all know that that your bond portfolio is here." for liquidity and interest rate risk. So you may have to have a shorter bond portfolio because your loan book is long, right? You have to yeah. manage out interest rates or vice versa. So I think a lot of other factors play into it. But I think the point that you and I chatted about for a minute before the podcast started, think about a financial institution. They are not out there marketing and saying, hey, Charlie, give me your money. I'm going to charge you a little bit for it, but I'm going to go make more than you could go make in some benchmark, right? Yeah. Or some index fund. That is not what we're doing. We're, we're actually paying you for your money so that we can go lend it out and make a spread. And sometimes we have to buy bonds. There's a really big difference. And I think for people that sit on boards of financial institutions or in the lending area or in operations, sort of sometimes probably wonder, well, why is our bond portfolio the way it is? Because I read all this stuff and there's some really cool assets out there. Why aren't we doing that? And that's really the reason. So the chief financial officer has to manage all of that and, and stay within regulatory guidelines and more importantly, managing the holistic balance sheet, not managing a bond portfolio, what I'll call in a silo. That's a mistake. Scott, I want to thank you again. This has been great. In your experience, how many, I always think of, you know, the folks in the, on the lending team as some of the ones that are probably closest to the financials of the bank. In, in your opinion, do, does the average loan officer understand the treasury side of their bank? Do they understand this this investment side of their bank, or or does anybody in the bank really? I, I, you know, and again, it's kind of the reason we're doing the podcast in the first place. Yeah. But 
What are your thoughts on that? You know, I always used to say this. I do a fair amount of public speaking. One of the comments I used to make, people give me a weird look. I used to say, I can tell when there's a really good chief financial officer because the lenders don't necessarily love he or she. Oh. <laughs> and, I used to, and I used to say that people look at me like I'm crazy. But if you really think about it, I don't think lenders or ops or other areas of the institution fully appreciate the treasury management side of the world and probably don't fully understand why a chief financial officer's favorite word sometimes is the word no. Right. And, and so I think there's probably a little bit of a disconnect. I find it when I do board meetings and ALCO meetings, I do like to kind of ask certain questions to individuals in the room who have different roles, because I think, Charlie, you're touching on something. If the lenders and the ops and the back office understood treasury management and what the chief financial officer is going through, it makes you a better institution. It starts making you think about the lending a little differently or the operations a little bit differently. So I think there's room for almost every institution across the board to have a little bit more education on that. Well, they're going to get it after this after this podcast, Scott. <laughs> well, thanks again. Thanks for spending all the time with us, Scott. Did you want to leave uh, any contact information? Uh, clearly, you're uh, you know very savvy in this part of the world, and I, I expect that some of our listeners may want to learn a little bit more. You can look me up at pipersandler.com. Uh, I should be on the website. Shoot me a note. Uh, love to chat about anything. And, uh, and Charlie, I, I just want to thank you. I really enjoyed this and appreciate you taking the risk of having somebody like me come on your podcast. <laughs> it's scott.hildenbrand at psc.com. That's my email. And you can also find me on my website, uh, on our firm's website, pipersandler.com. Excellent. Okay, perfect. Awesome. Okay, well, thanks to Scott for joining us. He helped make a, a topic that probably puts a lot of CFOs, spouses to sleep at night. Very interesting. Um, I liked his perspective on it. I think he has a nice rounded view. And it was just a, a pleasure to talk to him. So once again, for Bank Talk, this is Charlie Kelly, your host. Keep on learning. Thank you for listening to the Bank Talk podcast. For the latest information, go out to banktalkpodcast.com and we will see you in the next episode.